Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. We're in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 9 this morning. We focused on verses 1 through 6 last week. We're going to move on to verses 7 through 9 this week, God willing. So if you missed out on 1 through 6, you can go back and listen to that. But we're just moving on slowly but surely through this passage. I'll review a little bit verses 1 through 6, but we're going to focus mainly on 7 through 9. Matthew 19 Verses 1 through 9. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. And Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Father, we again come before You in the name of Jesus and thank You for the Lord Jesus. We thank You for His words. We we thank You that You instruct us in how to live with regard to marriage. We thank You that You love us so much that you, You do this and You make it clear and Lord, we pray that we would receive Your words as as love. Lord, we pray that You would help me preach the Word uh, according to uh, the tone that Jesus spoke these words and meant these words. We pray, Lord, for grace for people who have have fallen and stumbled in this area, that they would know the, the great mercy and forgiveness, Lord Jesus, that You give. And yet, Lord, that we would also uphold the standards that You give us and seek to live them out for Your glory. So, God, You know who's here. You know what everyone needs to hear. You know the situations of marriages in our midst, Father. And and so we pray that, Holy Spirit, You would come and apply Your Word to everyone here, singles and marrieds and even children would rightly know what you, you, You say about marriage as they look forward to growing up and possibly being married. We, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would apply the Word of God exactly in the right way that we need to hear it. Help me speak it in the right way and preach faithfully. And we ask, God, that you would get glory and that we as a church would be built up in the knowledge of your Word and will concerning marriage. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I defined marriage last week. Uh, as the the joining of 
uh, one man and one woman in, in a covenant promise. And so it had two, two ingredients to make a marriage. That covenant promise where they go before witnesses and, and a, a covenant promise before God and before witnesses that we are going to be married to one another. Uh, in sickness and in health, richer for poor, uh, good and bad, we're, we're, we're together to the end and they make a promise. And so that's the first part of marriage, that covenant promise. And in the second part of mar- make, uh, what makes a marriage is that consummation that happens uh, on the wedding night, usually. And, and so uh, that, that's what marriage is. And we, we did look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 24-2, marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife for the increase of mankind with legitimate children and of the church with a holy seed and for preventing of uncleanness. But then I, I made the argument that they left out the main purpose of marriage. I talked to one of my Presbyterian friends. He said, oh, yeah, they, they, they were, they just, you know, they, they know that. Obviously, they just left that out because it was for all marriages, not just Christian marriages. But they did. They left out the most important purpose of marriage. And I, and I hope you'll get that. I, I say this to emphasize that because I want to emphasize the most important purpose of marriage. The most important purpose of marriage is, is not for a helpmate or for children or, or for sexual purity. The main purpose of marriage is to display the undying, unchanging, never-ending love for Christ and His church. I quoted John Piper, the deepest and highest meaning of marriage, not sexual intimacy, as good as that is, not friendship, as good as that is, not mutual helpfulness, as good as that is, not childbearing and childrearing, as good as that is, but the flesh and blood display in the world of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and His church. That's the main thing about marriage. And that's why, even if you lose all those other things... <laughs> If they're not being very good helpmates, or you can't have children anymore, or, you know, things don't work the way they used to, and you still stay married because the main purpose of marriage is to stay married. (laughs) The main purpose, I think Piper says it elsewhere, the main thing about marriage is not staying in love, but keeping your covenant promise. Keeping your covenant promise to show forth the love that Christ has for the church because Christ will never leave the church and the church will never leave Christ. And so we want to strike a right chord in sermons like this between showing God's purposes and standards And he has very high standards. He has very high standards concerning marriage. We, we, we won't get to this verse today, but if you look at verse 10, uh, notice when Jesus gives the standards for marriage, the disciples respond, well, nobody should ever do this then. (laughs) If this is what marriage is, Jesus, nobody should ever do this. Nobody should ever get married. It reminds me of a pastor of a former church and he would take married, uh, premarital 
counseling and he would, he would talk to the couple about everything that could possibly go wrong. You know, if your husband does something wrong and gets thrown in prison, you're still married to him, right? You know that, right? I mean, he would just go through scenario after scenario after scenario to try to scare them out of doing this. <laughs> because it's a high standard. And people need to know what they're doing when they make such a serious covenant. And so we want to preach the high standard of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and what marriage is. But we also want people who have failed in this area to know that there's grace, mercy, and forgiveness for all who repent and trust in Jesus. And then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, seek to obey what Jesus teaches us in these verses about marriage and divorce. We, we need to strike both those, those chords uh, faithfully. I was reading a book this week that I thought gave a, a beautiful illustration of this um, concerning sexual purity. Uh, Pastor Garrett Kale has written a book called Pure in Heart, and uh, he tells the story of, of, of his wedding night with his wife. And uh, his wife pulls out a letter that's very torn and tattered. It's a very old envelope with little hearts on it. And she gives it to her husband on their wedding night. And he opens it up, and it's a letter that she wrote when she was 13 years old, promising the man that she would marry that she was going to save herself for him and be a virgin on their wedding night. Isn't that beautiful? 13-year-old little girl wrote a letter. This is for my future husband. I'm waiting for you. And she's able to present this gift, this, this gift of virginity that you can only give to one person. And she presents this letter to him. Well, he starts crying. He's touched by this, but he's also crying because he can't give her the same gift. He can't give her the same gift. He, he lost his virginity earlier in his life by sinning against the Lord. And so he has regret as well as th thankfulness to his wife. And then she ministers to him and reminds him of the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. That he is forgiven, that he does not need to be ashamed, and they now live together as husband and wife in that sexual union for the glory of God, forgiven by him. And so that sort of shows both. It shows the high standard. Y young people, you ought to be thinking about writing letters like that. You don't have to write letters, but you want to make that commitment that you're going to wait. You're going to wait to give that gift to the person that you marry. And for those who haven't, you need to know there's mercy, right? There's mercy and grace and forgiveness. But by the grace of God, we want to live that way now. We want to be pure walking forward and walk in the holiness that Christ has purchased for us. And so we want to do that today. God's standard, it's high. It can seem overwhelming. It can seem unattainable. And, and, and in, our, in and of ourselves, it is unattainable. But with Christ, all things are possible. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. And we also want to um, remind people of the gospel that there's grace, there's mercy, there's forgiveness. And He breaks the power of canceled sin. 
He breaks the power of canceled sin. So that sin's canceled, but he gives us power then to walk in holiness. And so we, we want to strike those, those chords. Thesis statement for this sermon today, we see Jesus confront false teachers, the Pharisees, by pointing them back to God's Word in Genesis, which shows that divorce is against God's righteous command because marriage is God permanently joining one man and one woman in a one flesh union that should never be separated. And Jesus shows us today that divorce is permitted in the case of sexual immorality. Last week, we looked at points one through five, and we'll look at points six through eight today. Point number one was Jesus keeps loving and healing. We saw that Jesus is in the midst of the people, loving them, caring for them, healing them, that He's the one that really cares for them, even as He speaks hard truths of God's high standard to them. He's the one who loves. The Pharisees who have this lack standard, oh, that's okay, it's okay, that's okay, do whatever. No, no, they don't love you. They don't love the people. Jesus loves the people who teaches God's standard. Number two, the Pharisees test Jesus by asking Him about divorce. They they wanted to try to get the people to turn away from Jesus by seeing Jesus pitted against Moses, or they wanted to get Jesus in trouble by Him saying something about marriage and divorce and get Him killed like John the Baptist got killed. I saw one quotation this week. When you speak faithfully about marriage, people kill you. That's what happened to John the Baptist. He was speaking faithfully and truthfully and biblically about what marriage is, and he got killed for it. That's going to happen in this country. If you stand up and speak about what marriage is in this country now, people are going to kill you. Either with their words or possibly something worse. But we follow John the Baptist as he follows Christ. We saw number three, Jesus teaches that there are only two genders. Male and female, we spent a little bit of time on that, sort of a side point, but but I wanted to emphasize that because of the cultural situation that we're in. Number four, Jesus teaches that the words of Moses in Genesis are the words of God. Another little side point, but I hope you saw that and it encouraged you about the Word of God. That, that that's the way Jesus views the Bible. He he views he views the first five books of the Bible as written by God. G O D, that A P J whatever stuff. G O D is Jesus' way. <laughs> Number five, Jesus teaches that marriage is primary, personal, and permanent. And we spent most of our time there. Uh, marriage is primary. You shall leave father and mother and hold fast to your wife. It's the most important relationship you are in in this world. More important than mommy and daddy. More important than than sons and daughters. Husbands and wives come first according to God's Word under Christ. And we did emphasize Christ is always first by far. (laughs) Marriage is primary. It's personal. We talked about the one flesh union and what that means. That, that marriage is personal and, and that marriage is permanent. It's permanent. What God has joined together. He's made, made uh, husbands and wives one flesh and what God has joined together, let no one separate. It's permanent. And, and this, though it, it may, may strike as sort of the, the, the hardest thing for some people to bear, it's actually what most clearly shows us the gospel. 
Marriage is permanent. That, that, is, that is God's gospel love for us. And, and to get any of this, you've got to get the gospel. Right? You've, you've got to get the gospel. And, and marriage shows the, the permanence of God's love for us. Friends, if you're here this morning, you're an unbeliever. You're an unbeliever. Uh, uh, you need to hear this gospel before you can ever get anything right about marriage. Uh, you need to know just some basics about what the Bible teaches. That the Bible teaches that all of us have sinned against God. In, in marital language that the Bible uses, we have all played the prostitute. The Bible uses the word whoredom. We, we've played the whore against God. It's, it's, a, it's an ugly picture. But in our sin, we, we have other gods before God and, 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 and God's Word describes that as spiritual adultery. And so we, we, we sin against the Lord in, in manifold ways by, by not loving our spouses as we should, by not staying married, by getting divorced in unbiblical and unrighteous ways, by losing our tempers and, 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 and getting angry, by sexual sin and adultery and, and pornography and lust, by, by, by anger and, and, and lying and cheating, stealing, I mean, manifold ways, finding God boring. Finding God boring by, by failing to love God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength, by failing to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, we've, we've all sinned against God. And, and because we've been unfaithful uh, uh, to our, our heavenly husband, we, we deserve His wrath and judgment and an eternal divorce. That's what we deserve for our sin. We, we deserve to be separated from God in His love and mercy and, and very present with Him in His justice and wrath in hell forever and ever and ever. That's what we deserve for our sins. But God, because of the great love with which He loved us, sent forth His Son Jesus, the, the, the perfect One, the sinless One, and, and He never disobeyed. He perfectly obeyed and loved His God and loved us and loved His neighbor. And then He died on that cross and suffered that separation from the Father, crying, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? He took God's wrath and curse upon Himself. He died and was buried. And on the third day, He rose from the dead. That is the good news of what God has done to save you and me. And He calls all of us everywhere to repent of our sins and believe in Him, to trust in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And God is inviting you to do that today if you've never done that. If you've never trusted in Jesus, God is inviting you to do that today to believe in Him, to turn from your sins, to agree, to agree with what Jesus says about marriage and life and, and sin and say, yes, I am a sinner. And I deserve Your wrath in hell. But Lord, I believe in Jesus. I trust You to save me. Believe on Him and, and He promises to save you. To save you from your sins. Are you ready to die? 
Are you ready to die? So, so much news was shared this week about those five people in that submarine that went down to try to see the Titanic. And it reminded me of that story of John Harper who was on the Titanic, who was preaching the gospel to people as they sunk down into the Atlantic Ocean, that they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Have you done that? Have you believed on the Lord? Are you ready to die? Are you ready to die? You could die this week. This could be the last time in your life you ever hear the gospel again. Are you ready? Believe in, trust in Christ. If you haven't done that, you'd like to talk to somebody afterwards, I'll be here afterwards. There are other Christians here who would love to speak with you. We want everybody to be ready to die before they leave this earth. As Jim Elliott said, when it comes time to die, make sure that's all you have to do is die. Jesus is our hope. And the Gospel is a picture of this hope because the Gospel is that if you believe on Christ, He will never leave you. Marriage is permanent. Christ is the great husband. We are a part of the bride, the church, and Jesus shed His blood for His bride, and He will never let her go. That marriage is permanent. Your marriages are to picture this permanence, this permanent love, this never-ending, never-changing, undying love. This is the kind of love that God has for us in Christ. And marriages are to picture that gospel love. Now the Pharisees are here and, and they're absolutely uh, 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 disrupting and, 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 and messing up this picture of, of what marriage is supposed to be. And, and they, they hear Jesus Tell them, this is what the Bible says. This is what God says. This is what Genesis says. This is how it was from the beginning. And, and they, they have more questions because they don't like that. And so in verse 7, we see them ask another question. The Pharisees ask Jesus a second question about the law of Moses and divorce. Look at verse 7. They said to Him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, point, first thing you should realize about this is, is that Moses did not command divorce. Moses did not command divorce. The Pharisees are just plain misinterpreting and misusing Deuteronomy 24. Uh, uh, Moses, God never commanded divorce anywhere in the Old Testament. Look at Deuteronomy 24. I think you'll be helped to look at this. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. This is... Probably where the Pharisees are, are getting their question from, but they, they, they miss it. They, they, they misuse the Scripture to justify their sin. Right? We, 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 we are in danger. We can be in danger of doing that. Using God's Word to justify our sin. Deuteronomy 24 1 through 4, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the Bible. 
Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Beloved, notice this. These verses don't command divorce at all. They don't command divorce at all. But describe what what men in Israel were doing. This passage describes what the men of Israel were doing as regards divorce. The verses actually command, what do they command? They do command something. They command that if, after a man divorces his wife for some indecency, and if she marries another man, then if that new husband divorces her or dies, the first husband cannot take her back. That's the command. And that command is actually a deterrent or warning against divorce. You see that? (laughs) This command actually says you better be uh, careful before you do this because after you go through all this and then you think you want her back, you get all lonely and you remember the good old days and you, you want her back and you think you can go back. You can't go back. So you better think before you go divorcing. So, so you see what the Pharisees are doing? They're, they're taking a passage that's actually in the intention of, 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 of slowing down divorce and deterring divorce and pushing people away from divorce as a uh, reason to divorce for any reason. That's some wicked twisting of the Bible. But the Pharisees are masters of that. Now, one one question I do want to ask about this passage in Deuteronomy 24 is, what is the sum indecency in verse 1? Right? Describes uh, the men of Israel divorcing, giving her a street divorce for some indecency. It's some kind of sexual sin. Some kind of sexual sin... Now, D.A. Carson writes, the best assumption is that the indecency was any lewd immoral behavior, sometimes including, but not restricted to adultery, homosexuality, or sexual misconduct that fell short of intercourse. Now, the problem that I wrestled with this week is, with seeing indecency as adultery, is that um, there was nobody to divorce in the Old Testament for adultery because they were dead. If you, if you committed adultery under God's holy law in the Old Testament, the adulterer was put to death. So there was no need to divorce because you're a widow. You see? So, so that, that's the, the, the wrestling there. Um, Deuteronomy 22.22, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. And so, 
there, there was no need for divorce because if you committed adultery, you were put to death. I found John MacArthur's explanation for this the most helpful of any of the things I read. He said this, if you knew in your society that adultery ended in death, and he's trying to get at what is the indecency for which men would divorce their wives for in Deuteronomy 24, what is that indecency? If you knew in your society that adultery ended in death, you might do a lot of things, but you generally would control yourself just short of adultery. True? I mean, you really wouldn't want to die. And so apparently what happened was there were people who were entering into shameless, indecent, habitual, indulgent sin in sexual sin or other sin, but coming just short of actually committing adultery. Acts that stopped just short of adultery. And that appears to be what happened in Deuteronomy 24. Here's a woman who is shameful, who is vile, and she stops short of adultery, so the death penalty cannot be applied, but she commits these evil things, and her husband just divorces her. The main point that I wanted to share all of this is that I want you to see God takes this seriously. God takes marriage and adultery very seriously. Adultery is a big deal to God. He warns us about this because He loves us. So I, 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 I'm, trying to, I'm trying to do the balance here. There, there's a, a big standard here, and, and yet I want, you to, I want you to receive it as grace that, that God loves you so much that He, he warns you you about this. He loves marriage so much. He cares about marriage so much. He, he cares about, he cared about showing that commitment so much in the old covenant that it was the death penalty for people who broke their marriage vows. And that's why Proverbs 6.32 says, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Quite literally, destroys himself. We saw this when we studied Proverbs 7. I actually want to read Proverbs 7, 1 through 27. You'd be helped to turn there in your Bibles. Proverbs 7. It's right there next to the Psalms. If you open your, if you shut your Bible and open it to try to get the middle, you usually find the Psalms. And then one book over is Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 7. We, we, we're told this, this story of of a, of, a, of a stupid young man and how he's enticed, a foolish young man and how he's enticed into the house of an adulterous woman. And Proverbs was written, if you remember, Proverbs was written so that the king's sons would live a godly, righteous life. Be ready to be king. And so Proverbs 7, beginning in verse 1, my son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice and I have seen among the simple... I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him 
dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. And I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him at full moon. He will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. God warns of this, that it is the way to death, the way to hell, the way to destruction, the way to destroy your life, your marriage, your children, your livelihood. You could literally lose everything. And so it's a big deal to God and it should be a big deal to us. It's not only a big deal to God in the Old Testament, but it's a big deal to God in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10 through 10, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Hebrews 13, 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The Pharisees didn't get all this. The Pharisees were seeking a way out. They were seeking ways in which to indulge their sinful desires. And they asked Jesus these questions, both to try to get Him in trouble and to try to justify their sinful living. So how does Jesus respond? Jesus corrects the Pharisees and teaches that hard hearts are the central reason for divorce. Look at verse 8. Look how Jesus answers them. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Beloved, we should see from this that divorce was never God's ideal way or plan. When you read this, you shouldn't read the people who, who commit adultery have hard hearts, though that's true. It's more of a general statement about sin being in the world, and because sin is in the world, divorce is in the world. Hardness of heart is always involved in divorce. For everybody involved. 
any divorce, whether allowed by God's Word, as we'll talk about later or not, is a result of hardness of heart. Divorce was never and never has been God's intention. That's why Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis and all the way back to a time when there was no sin. No sin, no hardness of heart. No hardness of heart, no divorce. Even no allowable divorce because no one would commit adultery. And then, and no one would abandon their spouse. So, so if there's no sin, there's no hardness of heart, there's no divorce. And, and Jesus is, is pointing them back to the very beginning when there is no sin. This is how it was meant to be. One man, one woman in covenant promise, in sexual one flesh union for life to show the love that I have for my people. D.A. Carson comments, both Mark, both Matthew and Mark show that Jesus taught that Moses' concession reflected not the true creation ordinance, but the hardness of men's hearts. Divorce is not part of the Creator's perfect design. If Moses permitted it, he did so because sin can be so vile that divorce is to be preferred to continued indecency. This is not to say that a person who, according to what Moses said, divorced his spouse was actually committing sin in doing so, but the fact that divorce could even be considered testified that there had already been sin in the marriage. Therefore, any view of divorce taught in either testament that sees the problem only in terms of what may or may not be done has already overlooked a basic fact. Divorce is never to be thought of as God-ordained, morally neutral option, but as evidence of sin and hardness of heart. The fundamental attitude of the Pharisees to the question is wrong. Again, the Pharisees are just trying to find a loophole to do what they want to do and not really wrestling with the question, what pleases God? What honors God? What is God's intention? And Jesus again points them back to the beginning when there was no sin at the end of verse 8. But from the beginning, it was not so. And we studied that last week. Verses 4 through 6. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh so that they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. But from the beginning it was not so. And he told them what it was like in the beginning. And then finally, Jesus, Jesus commands the highest standard of commitment in marriage and warns against adultery. That's how He finishes His answer to the Pharisees' question. He commands the highest standard of commitment in marriage and warns against adultery. Look at verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality and marries another, commits adultery. In Jesus' day, it would be the men who initiated divorce. And so for our day, we can also apply this to a wife as well. Whoever divorces her husband, except for sexual morality and marries another, commits adultery. 
And Jesus teaches us here that if you divorce your spouse and marry someone else, then you are committing adultery. If you wrongly divorce your spouse, in God's eyes, you're still married. And so to sleep with another person would be adultery. That's what Jesus says. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, we'll come back to that, and marries another, if you do that, you commit adultery. Because in God's eyes, you're still married. Wayne Grudem comments, the implication of Jesus' statement is that divorce for reasons other than adultery does not actually dissolve a marriage in the eyes of God. And so Jesus is again warning His people, warning the people, warning the Pharisees not to divorce. Divorce is bad. Divorce is wrong. And if you do divorce and remarry, you're committing adultery. And that should just sort of settle on us before we say, but, but what about? Just let that settle. But Jesus does allow for divorce for sexual immorality. Notice He allows it. He doesn't command it. He allows for it. So you see that again in verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, and marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus does allow for divorce for sexual immorality. In the case of sexual sin, like adultery, you may choose to divorce, but you do not have to divorce. And, and some argue that this needs to be a continual, unrepentant adultery. So, so, so there's uh, good men on marriage and divorce who love the Bible and love God's Word, differ on a lot of these things. Um, and this is one place men differ. So some believe that if, if your spouse has a one-night stand, comes back the next day, I'm so sorry, please forgive me, I was wrong, that, 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 that that's not a grounds for divorce. One-time thing, they are repentant, they're sorry, that's not a grounds for divorce. Some people view that, take that view. And they would say, no, this has got to be a repeated thing where there's no remorse, no repentance, no sadness. They're just blatantly keeping on in sexual sin and there's no repentance. And, and those are the grounds for, for divorce. D.A. Carson says Jesus is then saying that divorce and remarriage always involve evil, but as Moses permitted it because of the hardness of human hearts, so also does he. But, on, but now, on the sole grounds of porneia, that's the Greek word, which is, is basically sexual sin of any sort. I appreciate the, 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 the writers that strongly encourage reconciliation in marriages where there is adultery, but the, the, the sinning spouse is, is repentant and sorry. 
David Platt writes, the Pharisees were searching for circumstances in which it would be possible to end a marriage relationship, but Jesus says that we are not looking for reasons to divorce. The goal is not to look for a loophole in the law. Instead, we are longing for reconciliation to occur. Remember that this teaching in Matthew 19 comes right on the heels of the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. Just let that land on you. (laughs) Jesus teaching about marriage, divorce, remarriage, adultery comes right on the heels of the unforgiving servant. And that strong exhortation to forgive because you've been so greatly forgiven. Where Jesus taught His disciples to forgive extravagantly, Platt goes on. The implication is that we are to work and pray toward reconciliation and restoration, not because it's easy, but because Christ is in you. Divorce is possible, but because of the gospel, it's not inevitable. Beloved, we also need to be reminded in in, in the Bible that God divorced Israel. Did you know that? God divorced Israel for adultery against Him. And we don't... It's not, it's, it's, it's not good to try to be more holy than God. <laughs> A lot of people in the church try to be more holy than God. Add things to the Word of God. It's, it's not a good general rule to try to be more holy than God. God divorced Israel for adultery against Him. Jeremiah 3, 6-8 The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return and her treacherous Sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. God divorced His people, though... I heard one, one pastor say, but he was really patient. He, he waited years and years and years and years, hundreds of years before he finally did that. But he did. He did divorce his people for adultery as they played the whore and worshiped idols. And so God allows divorce for sexual morality. He himself did so. And God is righteous. Paul also gives a biblical reason for divorce. We call it abandonment. We've been studying 1 Corinthians 7 on, in, in, in Pastor Michael's uh, Sunday school class. 1 Corinthians 7, 13-15. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So, People in marriages where the one spouse is an unbeliever, God's Word is they consent to live, don't divorce. 
For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And this is the verse, primary verse on, on this abandonment reason for divorce. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So, so the situation, the second situation where God's Word seems to allow divorce is if the unbelieving spouse leaves you, wants nothing to do with you, totally abandons you, moves out, moves away, get away from me, I don't want anything to do with you, then God's Word says you're free to let them go. You're not bound to them. You're, you're free to divorce and remarry. I was reading Wayne Grudem. We're using his book to guide us in the Sunday school class, but he wrote this huge, fat book on Christian ethics, and he has a section on divorce and remarriage, and he, he held to a strict view of only those two grounds, uh, sexual morality and abandonment are grounds for biblical divorce um, if, if you're the, the faithful person in the marriage. So if, if you've not committed adultery, you've not been ab abandoning your spouse, you're trying to faithfully love your spouse, stay together, work things out, you're wanting to go to counseling, you're trying to work things out, but your spouse keeps cheating on you, abandons you, then you're free to divorce because they've been unfaithful. They're not free to remarry. You are free to remarry because you've been faithful. Th that, that is the, I would say, the majority Reformed view that the Westminster Confession upholds. Um, but Grudem actually added, and I, I think this could be included in the traditional view, just adding it to abandonment. What about physical abuse? So what, 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 what is the case where a husband is physically abusing the wife. That's usually what happens. I mean, sometimes I guess the wife could physically abuse the husband, but usually it's the husband physically abusing the wife. Um, Grudem changed his mind since he wrote his commentary, his book in 2018. He wrote an article in 2020 about it. If you would like that, I can send that to you. But he would include physical abuse as a grounds for divorce. I would simply agree with him and put that under abandonment. It's a kind of abandonment. If you're here this morning and you're being abused by your spouse or by anybody, you should call the police. You should call the police as soon as possible and you should tell the police what's happening and get help. Uh, you should definitely separate from your spouse and, and, and to a safe place. If that's happening, please let us know. We want to help you. And many would see physical abuse as a grounds for divorce. Each marriage and divorce case is different. So what I'm saying right now is not going to answer all your questions. Uh, I, I sent you a couple links to read. Um, but, but, but the bottom line is each marriage and divorce case is different. And that's why you should be eager to bring your situation before the elders of your church for counsel and direction. And, and I want to emphasize that. Marriage and divorce is not something you can just do on your own. 
You need to realize that your church leaders have authority in this. Your church has authority in this, and you need to consult with them. <laughs> this is not just, yeah, I'm going to do this, and I'll let you know what I'm doing. No, 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 no. You, you have a very wrong view of, of the church, of, of authority. Um, like Ted, like Brother Ted gave us a good example last week. He came to us. He spoke with us. He came with one direction he was moving, and he left with another. Because we want to make sure we're doing what Jesus commands. I mean, that's our burden. We want to make sure you're doing what God's Word says because we care about your soul. And so you want to be coming, if you have situations like this, if you have friends you're counseling in this, some of your first questions should be, have you talked to your elders about this? Have you gone to your pastor? Have you spoken to them about this so that they can speak God's Word into your situation? Every situation is different. It's a case-by-case basis. And that's why we have elders. That, that's why, I mean, I've had situations where I have to call other pastors who are friends of mine who've been doing this a lot longer than I have. Hey, brother, this is a situation. This is going on. What, 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 what would you, what would you do? What, help me here. And, and so we need collective wisdom in some of these matters. After a divorce, the spouse who has been faithful in the marriage, is free to remarry. If you did not do the cheating or committing adultery, if your spouse repeatedly cheats on you and has sex with others and does not repent, or if your spouse abandons you, then you are free to divorce your spouse and remarry. Because you have been faithful, but they have not. You are free to remarry, but the offending, sinning spouse is not free to remarry. And this position that I am preaching is simply, again, what the Westminster Confession teaches. I'm going to read from them. Uh, Westminster Confession, chapter 24 of Marriage and Divorce, paragraph 5. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract being de- detected before marriage, so this is like engagement, giveth just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out divorce, to get divorce. And after the divorce, to marry another... If the offending part, as if the offending party were dead. Paragraph six, although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage. <laughs> now that's, that's a helpful statement there. Because of our corruption, we, we looking for ways to get out. <laughs> because of our sin and hardness of heart, we looking for ways to get out of this marriage. And I've heard some whoppers. And you just need to realize that about your own heart. Am I really trying to follow Jesus in this, or do I just want out by any means necessary? Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. Again, that last sentence. Again, this this is a saying. This is not something you can just decide on your own. We need to talk. As the church leadership, we need to talk about this to help people navigate what Jesus says and live it out. 
Some practical applications, some practical applications here at the end. I love the ones that David Platt listed in his commentary on this. Number one, if you are married, love your spouse in a way that portrays the gospel. Again, just be encouraged, married couples. You are a living, walking picture of Jesus to the world. And we're in a messed up world where nobody commits to anything anymore. And you can be there and stand and show the world what the love of Christ is like for the church by the way you love each other and you stay in it no matter what. If you're married, love your spouse in a way that portrays the gospel. If you are considering divorce on biblical grounds because that's the only reason a Christian should ever be considering, remember the preciousness and power of the gospel. Remember the preciousness and power of the gospel. I, I do believe if your spouse commits adultery even once, then you have grounds for divorce. But after listening to a lot of others and studying this this week, I became more persuaded. Our elders even disagree on this. Some of our elders believe, no, it's not just one time. It needs to be multiple times and unrepentance. But I would just hold out to you, remember, this comes after Matthew 18 on forgiveness. And, 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 and Jesus doesn't command divorce. He allows it. And so I want to encourage people, especially if their spouse is repentant, to save the marriage. We want to see the marriage saved. And so if you're considering divorce on biblical grounds, remember the preciousness and power of the gospel to change people's hearts. That you've been forgiven so much and we, 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 we want to forgive. Number three, if you are divorced for a biblical reason and single, so you, you, you've gone through a divorce, but it was biblical, meaning the reason you got divorced was your spouse committed adultery or your spouse abandoned you. You worked with the church on this and, and, and it, 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 it was a righteous divorce in that sense that you had a biblical reason and you're single. Rest in the gospel in your singleness or the, the possibility in a future marriage. Again, rest in the grace of God. Rest in the mercy of God. Look to Christ as your husband, your satisfaction, your all in all. Four, if you are divorced for an unbiblical reason and single. In other words, if, if you're divorced but it wasn't biblical, it wasn't for a biblical reason, it, 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 you know, it was irreconcilable differences. That's not a reason Jesus gives. It was we just couldn't live together or it was it'll be better for the children. No, 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 it's not better for the children. No matter what you think, it's not. Uh, if, if you're divorced for some other reason because what uh, then Jesus says and God's Word says elsewhere, like abandonment, then you need to repent. <laughs> you need to repent uh, and rely on the Gospel to glorify God in your singleness. And, and what repentance might look like is going back to that divorced spouse and, and getting married to them. It may look like that. And that's a hard thing for some people to hear. And again, case by case basis, but it may look like that. True repentance doesn't just feel sorry, but it takes action. Number five, if you are divorced for an unbiblical reason and married. So you got divorced from a first marriage, second marriage, you shouldn't have because there was no biblical grounds and now you've remarried. 
what should you do? In other words, you, you committed adultery in that second marriage. What should you do? You should repent. You should repent. You should confess to God, Lord, I shouldn't have divorced. There was no biblical grounds. It was wrong for me to do that. I shouldn't have got married again. I committed adultery in the second marriage. It was wrong. You should confess to God your sin. And you should stay married to that second or third marriage and be faithful and live for Jesus in that new marriage. I don't believe you should end that marriage. Some people believe that, that you're committing co continuous adultery in that second marriage. I don't believe that. You should stay married. You should acknowledge the divorce was wrong. You should acknowledge the marriage was wrong. But I'm in it now, and now I live for Jesus. And we're going to follow Christ in this new marriage. And you be faithful and show forth Christ in the church and rest in the gospel in this new marriage. Now, some of you may have questions. We have a Q&A. I invite you to come and ask questions later. Uh, again, these, all, these, there's so many more things we could talk about, and it's a case-by-case -case basis on these things. If you have other questions, email me this week, call me this week. I'd love to, to speak with you about these things. But I, I want to end with this. Remember God's unfailing, never-changing, lavish love. Remember I mentioned that God divorced Israel? Listen to this article about that. One of the ways in which God assures His people of His love for them is to describe Himself as their husband. For example, the prophet says to Judah, Your Maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is His name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Israel often proved to be an unfaithful spouse committing spiritual adultery by worshiping false gods and forsaking the Lord. In fact, it was due to idolatry that God spoke this word in Jeremiah 3, 8 through 10. I gave faithfulness, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of her adulteries. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense. In this passage, God warns Judah against making the same mistakes that Israel, their neighbors to the north, had made. In their idolatry, Israel had polluted the land and broken their covenant with God. Due to the enormity of their sin, God punished Israel, and He illustrates that punishment like this. He divorced Israel and sent them away, a reference to the Assyrian invasion which resulted in Israel's removal from their homeland. Even given the example of Israel's divorce, Judah remained unfaithful as if daring God to mete out a similar punishment on them. Having just caused God, the faithful husband, divorced Israel, his unfaithful wife, to make matters worse, God had asked, if a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? The answer, according to the Mosaic Law, was no. A man had to divorce his wife. If he had to divorce his wife, could not later remarry her. According to God's metaphor, Israel seems to be in a hopeless situation. She has been divorced by God, and according to the law, she can never be accepted back. But then comes a surprising twist. God's mercy intervenes. 
Jeremiah 3.12, Return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. In the same passage in which God sets up a scenario of hopelessness for Israel, He invites His people to return to Him and promises that His anger will end. Could it be that God's love is stronger than His people's rebellion? The Lord doubles down on His invitation in Jeremiah 3.14. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you and bring you to Zion. God used the shocking illustration of a divorce of Israel to stress their guilt before Him, but God never cut Israel off unilaterally for all time. He only asked that they return to Him and experience His goodness. In fact, after God says that He divorced Israel, He commands them three times to return. The Apostle Paul explains, did God reject His people? By no means. God did not reject His people whom He foreknew. At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were grace, if it were, grace would no longer be grace. Again, I asked, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Another illustration of God's amazing goodness is found in the story of the prophet Hosea. God actually commanded Hosea to marry a prostitute. She did not remain faithful to Hosea. Then, while his wife was living in immorality, the Lord commanded Hosea to find her and buy her back. God's purpose was to show the greatness of His grace. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. Hosea 3.1 Hosea's grace toward his unfaithful wife is a model of God's grace toward his unfaithful people. Israel had been chosen and loved by God, yet they were unfaithful to him by way of idolatry. In Jeremiah 3, God gives them a bill of divorcement, but then he pleads with them to come back. In Hosea, God pursues and redeems his estranged wife and seeks to continue his relationship with her. Both stories provide an unforgettable picture of God's strong, unending love for His covenant people. Once the incredulous disciples asked Jesus, who can be saved? Jesus assured them that salvation is based on God's power and grace, not on man's efforts. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Beloved, let that be the, the taste in your mouth from this sermon. That God loves you with an everlasting love that He's pursuing you with grace and mercy all the days of your lives, even in hard sermons about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And He does all of this because He made you His and forgave you all of your sins through Jesus Christ, who was counted as the unfaithful spouse on that cross and was cursed and endured, as I mentioned last week, that greatest divorce when he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And died and then rose again so that you can hear all of this as mercy and grace and see it as pointing to that permanent love between Christ and the church. We see Jesus confront false teachers, the Pharisees, by pointing them back to God's Word in Genesis, which shows that divorce is against God's righteous command because marriage is God permanently joining one man and one woman 
in a one flesh union that should never be separated. And divorce is permitted in the case of sexual immorality. Christ Jesus came to change your heart. Our hardness caused marriages to part. But this was not so from the start. Yet Moses couldn't change your heart. It's Christ who made our sin depart. He died and rose our strong rampart. Now new soft hearts He does impart. So we stay married, not apart. For we're Christ's holy work of art. Because He loves and won our hearts. Father, we pray that You would so work in our lives by Your Holy Spirit to more and more win our hearts for Christ. That as we did here this morning, that You have loved us with everlasting love, and we sang, we love You. Lord Jesus, we confess that we love You. We love Your Word. Lord, we want to submit to everything You say. We want to obey all that You have commanded us, even when it's hard. Lord Jesus, whatever you say concerning marriage, whatever you say concerning divorce, whatever you say concerning remarriage, we want to obey Jesus. We want to please you, Jesus. We want to honor you. And so, God, we pray you would give us that kind of submissive heart. We ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom on these matters. Father, we pray for anyone here who may be struggling with these matters, that you would give them clarity uh, by your word. And we pray, Lord, that we would have strong, godly, biblical, holy marriages in our church where you are glorified, where the love of Christ in the church is clearly displayed. We pray that where there's been sin, that there would be healing and reconciliation. Father, we pray that you would work by your Spirit and draw us to Christ. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.